All right, we got down to Deuteronomy 13. Uh, we're getting more into the particular statutes and judgments. We might make more time here, not referring it as much to today's church as we have in the up to this point, although there are certainly the parallels and the principles are there that we need to consider. He says, If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and gives you a sign or a wonder... A sign or a wonder, we'll see, is not necessarily from God. It can be. He says he's going to cause signs and wonders in Zechariah 3 and in Joel 2 and many other places here in the end time. And that our young maidens and our old men and others will dream dreams and so on just before the day of the Lord. So signs or wonders can be done and be godly. Uh, the instruction here is about those that might not be godly. So he says, if a dreamer of dreams comes, and the sign of the wonder come to pass, whereof he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not hearken to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the eternal your God proves you to know whether you love the eternal your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Some dreams might lead us away from God. Other dreams would lead us toward God. And we have to discern if somebody has a dream or a vision or whatever, because people do have those things that come from Satan. And some come from God. Therefore, you have to know by the fruits. So he's helping us sort it out here, just as Ezekiel 33 does. Is it something that tends to make God's Word stronger and draw us closer to God, or is it something that would cause us to drift away or put our attention in some other direction? That's the key. You shall walk after the eternal your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice, and you shall serve Him and cleave to Him. And that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. That was back under the administration of death. Well, we are not given that now. We are allowed repentance and opportunity uh, to change, to grow, to repent, to change our attitudes, our approach, and whatever it might be. There is an administration of death coming, however, wherein if we do not overcome and grow, then we will partake of the third resurrection or the second death, which certainly is an administration of death. So the administration of death is not entirely done away with, is it? It's just that they don't take you out and stone you physically when you sin. Pretty harsh, but there were no repeat offenses, and others heard and feared, as he will say in a moment. So put him to death, because he has spoken to turn you away from the eternal your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of bondage, to thrust you out of the way which the eternal your God commanded you to walk in. So shall you put the evil away from the midst of you. And the principle certainly applies with us, that if someone is, whether it be a dream or a vision, or whether it's some conduct that is leading us away from God, we stop that. We don't allow that. That's why we can't mix with the world. One of the main reasons is they will ultimately lead you away 
from devotion to and obedience to God because they don't obey God. And the direction they're going is not toward God, it's away from God. And if you're around them, you will be pulled away from God. And God is very concerned about that. Very concerned. So concerned that if someone did that, they were to be stoned with stones. That's fairly severe. And we need to take it seriously. It's so easy to mix with the world and be pulled away. If you're, verse 6, he makes it even more imperative. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife of your bosom, or your friend, which as your own soul, very close best friend, as your own soul, like David and Jonathan, entice you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, you nor your fathers, namely of the gods of the people which are round about you, near to you, or far off from you, from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. Those in the world who would lead us away from God. You shall not consent to him, nor hearken to him. Neither shall your eye pity him, neither shall you spare, neither shall you conceal him. There is a time to tattletale. If someone is beginning to draw people away from God and in another direction, you are supposed to let it be known, not conceal it. According to God Almighty. We're taught in our country and in our nature and culture not to rat on anybody. Don't rat them out. You won't be liked or be popular if you tell. Well, if someone is drawing others away from God, God himself tells us to tell. And what do I usually get when someone brings something like that? Who told you? First question asked. Who told you that? They don't want to repent. They want to know who ratted them out. They want to know who their so-called enemy is. No, it's our friend who's letting us know that someone is pulling people away from God. Now, that does not conflict with Matthew 18, where he says if someone sin against you, go to that person, talk to them about it, try to resolve it on the lowest possible level. That's between two. If you can't resolve it there, you bring in another witness or two and try to settle it with three or four. If that doesn't work, then you take it to those in authority in the church, and they will look into the matter and resolve it at that level. So we can do that. But if you see someone who's pulling people away from the Word of God and trying to get them to do something different, you are not to conceal that. Now, there is a time to go ahead and take it to them first, perhaps, and see if they stop. But if they don't, it needs to be known before other people are hurt. That's how we protect the flock. So don't conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. That's your own mate or your child. That's how severely God looked at this. 
Now, we don't kill, as I said, but God is still just as concerned that we be drawing close to Him and not going after other gods in the world as He was then. Your hand shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. So the one who brings it out, who brings it into the open, has to be the one who lifts the first stone and throws it. That makes you careful, then, in what you do report. And you shall stone him with stones that he die, because he has sought to thrust you away from the eternal your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage. And all Israel shall hear and fear, and shall do no more any such wickedness as this is among you. In our nation today, when capital punishment is mentioned, well, it's no deterrent. People still do the things that they should be put to death for. Not if right after the trial they are judged guilty, they are immediately hanged in public view, or stoned, even better, the way God did it, then that is a deterrent, especially if it happens every time. That would make people hear and fear. Now, they're going to sit on death row and everybody forget it and they don't figure it's ever going to happen. No, it's not a deterrent. But it is if you do it the way God says. If you shall hear say in one of your cities, which the eternal your God has given you to dwell there, saying, Certain men, the children of the devil, are gone out from among you, and have withdrawn the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known. Then shall you inquire and make search, and ask diligently. And behold, if it be truth, not just rumor, not just hearsay, but look into it carefully. If it be truth, and the thing certain that such abomination is worked among you, you shall surely smite the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, destroying it utterly, and all that is therein, and the cattle thereof with the edge of the sword. And you shall gather all the spoil of it, gold, silver, clothes, house, furnishings, everything. Uh, and you shall gather all the spoil in the middle of the street thereof, and shall burn with fire the city, and all the spoil thereof, every last piece, for the eternal your God. And it shall be in heap forever, it shall not be built again. So if in any of their towns or cities someone started drawing them away from God, they were to kill everything in that city, burn it, and leave it as a memorial. But if you start pulling away from God, you die. Why does God have to be so strong with these things? Because we have the prones, as the Baptist preacher called it. We're prone to sin. We're prone to rebel. And so God laid the law down. How else was he going to keep them from going the wrong way? Maybe it helps us understand a little how much we have to devote ourselves to God and turn to God and pray and study in order to keep going the right way. It is not easy, even with the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, And there shall cleave nothing of the cursed thing to your hand, that the Eternal may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy, 
and have compassion upon you and multiply you as he has sworn to your fathers. All he wants is people that will just do things his way and live an orderly, peaceful society according to his rules. And if somebody starts breaking his rules, they die. And then that makes people more uh, inclined to keep his rules. When you shall hearken to the voice of the Eternal your God to keep all his commandments which I command you this day, to do that which is right in the eyes of the Eternal your God. Chapter 14. You are the children of the Eternal your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor make any baldness between your eyes for the dead. The, the heathen around them uh, carved things in their bodies. They cut their eyebrows and their hair in certain shapes to indicate certain things. Um, maybe some example of that could be the Gothics of today. When you see one of them in a health food store somewhere, you know, everything's black and they're real black here like a raccoon. And, and, uh, and they look weird. Uh, that's just one example that comes to mind. Tattoos are in the same category. We should not be... You, you cut the flesh, really, to give a tattoo. You stick holes in it to put that tattoo on there. And it can mean a lot of different things. Some people use religious tattoos. Others just something they think is cute. But this was more specifically for religious reasons. Uh, and he explains that here in verse 2. For you are a holy people unto the eternal your God. And the eternal has chosen you to be a redeemed or a particular people to himself, sanctified above all the nations that are upon the earth. So we're to be careful with our bodies and not do anything pagan with them. We need to be careful with hairdos. We need to be careful with dress. Be careful with uh, every part of it is the principle here, so that we don't look weird and odd and strange. Uh, and the world out there doing these things. They are rebelling against society. We did have a somewhat orderly society that somewhat tried to follow God. But now we do all kinds of weird hairdos to draw attention and to indicate a rebellion against the way society does things. Well, the Mormons, for all their weird doctrines and so on, and not being in contact with the true God, do have a certain decorum, at least those who are fairly faithful to the church. They wear normal hairdos. They have clothes that are generally uh, fairly uh, modest and the guys aren't wearing their pants clear down nearly to their knees with their butt crack showing. Uh, you know, that started in prison where the fairy queens dropped their pants down below their cheeks to let the big guys know that they were ready and willing. That's how that started. And now it's getting worse. Now they're doing the peg legs and still got them down below their crack. Is that where God's people should be going? With their weird punk hairdos and their weird clothes? The women with their bellies showing and their butt cheeks showing out the bottom and their boobs hanging out the top. 
God wants us to be a particular, sanctified, redeemed people. He wants us to be modest and whatever maybe I should, should I use the word normal? Whatever normal is, normal today is maybe weird. But some of the things of the past were not necessarily out of line. Let's not go too far in that direction at the moment, but we're to be holy and sanctified and not look weird and out of place. And it's a reflection on God and God's people when some of you leave here and go do those things so you can look like the world and be acceptable to them. We are to be a light to the world, not look like the world. We need to keep that in mind. What was Terry saying the other day in his sermon? That character and integrity is what you do when others aren't looking, when other church people can't see you. God can see you all the time. He knows what you're doing, doesn't he? But he's not right here looking at you, as far as you know. Verse 3, you shall not eat any abominable thing. These are the beasts which you shall eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the hart, the roebuck, the fallow deer, the wild goat, and the pygarg, or pygarg. My margin says bison. I wonder, I need to look that Hebrew word up, uh, of bison. Uh, and I want to see what they had in the Middle East as soon as I get my internet up about Wednesday. Uh, there's several things through here I want to look up. Because we had bison here. Did they have bison over there? Maybe they did of some form or shape, I don't know. And then on the other hand, they'll say to us, well, where are the camels? Uh, over here. But there are camel bones that have been found over here. There are no camels here now unless they're in a zoo or I've seen them on ranches that people are raising them in Texas and other places. But uh, there were camels here a long, long time ago, and the bones have been found. Just another, these little things that we'll check out to see what fits the Middle East and what fits better over here. Anyway, every beast that parts the hoof and cleaves the cleft into two claws and chews the cud among the beasts, that you shall eat. We understand this. Cattle and sheep are okay. Pigs have a cloven hoof, but they don't chew the cud. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat of them that chew the cud or of them that divide the cloven hoof, as the camel, the hare, the coney that chew the cud but divide not the hoof. Therefore, they are unclean to you. Some hares or rabbits or conies uh, chew a cud, but they've got paws. There are other animals that have a cloven hoof but don't chew the cud. So they've got to do both to be clean. Uh, the swine, because it divides the hoof, yet choose not the cud, it is unclean to you. You shall not eat of their flesh, nor touch their dead carcass. Uh, these shall you eat of all that are in the waters, all that have fins and scales shall you eat. Whatsoever has not fins and scales you may not eat, it is unclean to you. Of all clean birds you shall eat, but these are they of which you shall not eat, the eagle, the ossifrage, the osprey, the gled, the kite, the vulture, uh, every raven, the owl, the night hawk, the cuckoo, cuckoo uh, and the hawk after his kind, the little owl, the great owl, the swan, the pelican, the gyre eagle, the cormorant, and the sork, and the heron, and the lapwing, lapwing and the bat. 
I guess there are people that eat bats, but it's not very appealing. Probably in the Orient they do. They might eat bats too. I don't know. They eat bat guano too. Every creeping thing that flies is unclean to you. They shall not be eaten. But of all clean fowls you may eat. So there's the clean and unclean. You shall not eat of anything that dies of itself. You shall give it to the stranger that is in your gates that he may eat it. Or you may sell it to an alien. Uh, something that dies of itself. I think the principle is still there that we shouldn't eat it. I don't know that I want to eat anything basically that dies in and of itself. It's probably diseased or has some kind of a problem like that. And Why would you want to eat it? But, but you can sell it to somebody else out in the world, I guess, if you want. That was what he said, if they want to eat it. For you are a holy people to the eternal your God. He wants us to separate. And these things are a reminder. It's just a physical thing clean and unclean meats, and that which dies of itself or is killed for the purpose of eating, uh, is a constant reminder to us <coughs> that we need to divide the clean from the unclean, a spiritual reminder of clean and unclean thoughts and actions. You shall not see the kid in his mother's milk. Uh, that's been interpreted different ways. But the Canaanites apparently boiled the baby alive in the mother's milk. Sounds kind of unmerciful. Oh, God is one for mercy. Uh, maybe that was what he's talking about, or maybe he means don't uh, kill and eat a baby while it's still nursing. At least wait till it's weaned. You know, it is, it is kind of unmerciful and, I think, hard-hearted to grab a key, you know, he's sitting there sucking on his mommy's nipple, and you pull him away and hack his head off, that's not really a merciful, loving, kind way to be, I don't think. Uh, and maybe God is making that point. So there could be two or three different explanations of this that could be, but of all the ones I've heard, I didn't want to do any of them anyway. So exactly what it means might still remain to be seen. Verse 22, you shall tr truly tithe all the increase of your seed that the field brings forth year by year. So tithing is year by year. Uh, which tithe is this talking about? Because there are several by choice, I mean by use. And the usage here in the context will tell us which this is talking about. You shall eat before the eternal your God in the place which he shall choose to place his name there. The tithe of your corn, your wine, of your oil, and the firstlings of your herds and of your flocks that you may learn to fear the eternal, your God, always. Everything that God has us do is to teach us obedience, respect, and fear of Him. That's why we have the rituals, the ordinances, the statutes, and the judgments that we have. They all have meaning and spiritual principle, even these things here. And they were keeping the feasts in the New Testament, several Several times those are mentioned in the New Testament. So the New Testament church did it. It's not just something that was in the Old Testament. Anyway, and if the way be too long for you, so that you are not able to carry it, or if the place be too far from you, which the eternal your God shall choose to set his name there, and we saw yesterday that that was in Jerusalem. I gave you several scriptures you could look up to prove that. When the eternal your God has blessed you, 
Then you shall turn it into money, and bind up the money in your hand, and shall go to the place which the eternal your God shall choose. So that's to Jerusalem, and the time that we're commanded to go there is for the feasts. And you shall bestow that money for whatsoever your soul desires, for oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink, or for whatsoever your soul desires, and you shall eat there before the eternal your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. Somebody says, well, God commands me and says that I can have anything I want at the feast. Now that is all things being equal. If you have a problem with alcohol, this is not permission for you to drink. There are people who have difficulties and have been all through the history of the church, the early New Testament church and the church today, who simply cannot handle alcohol. If they start drinking, they can't control it, they drink too much. They should never drink, ever, except for the Passover. And that should be the hard and fast rule. No drunkard will enter the kingdom of God. So if you have a problem with it, it isn't okay to be drunk at the feast and not the rest of the year. So we have to understand that. If you have a problem with something, then that's something that you should not have, even though it might be generally okay for most everyone. And people have different things they have trouble controlling, and alcohol is one of those that comes up fairly frequently, because it is a plague in our nation and in the world. Okay. Verse 27, The Levite that is within your gates, you shall not forsake him, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. They were not given land as a tribe. At the end of three years you shall bring forth all the tithe of your increase the same year, and shall lay it up within your gates. Now see, this is a different tithe. The first one is one that you take to the feast, and if it's too far where God has said take it, you turn it into money, and you can haul money. And there you rebuy those things which you might enjoy eating during the feast. So it's something you take to the place and you spend. Now let's see what is different, and that says year by year. Every year, year by year. Now here is something different in verse 28. At the end of three years, you shall bring forth all the tithe of your increase the same year, and shall, shall lay it up within your gates. It isn't something you take to the feast and spend, Every third year, you lay it up in your gates. Totally different use. And the Levite, because he has no partner or inheritance with you, and the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow, which are within your gates, shall come and shall eat and be satisfied, that the eternal your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So this one is something every third year you have an additional tithe. You keep the second tithe year by year to go to the feast with. You don't just go to the feast every third year, do you? No. You do that year by year. This you lay up every third year, or more technically the third and the sixth year, out of the seven-year cycle. 
and you keep that within your gates, and you have it there to take care of these categories, the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Those are the only ones it's going to within the church, within God's people, within Israel, spiritual Israel today. People are always saying, well, what do I do with my third tithe? Well, you used to send it in, and the church spent it, allegedly, on those things. And it did go to those things, but it got out of balance in how much went to where. But you have that opportunity. You can give it to the elders. Sometimes people forget them looking for a widow. And uh, sometimes we have a stranger among us uh, that could qualify for that. Uh, an orphan or a widow. Four categories God gives. Okay, at the end of every seven years, uh, he has the third tithe here, you have a year of release. So it's the third and the sixth year for a third tithe. Then you have a year of release in there. Uh, you shall make a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor that lends anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not exact it of his neighbor or of his brother, because it is called the eternal's release. So, if somebody borrows money from you, and we, I think we, at some point, we've talked about it, need to establish a seven-year cycle, so that we're all keeping our third tithe together, the third and the sixth year, and we all have the same year of release. Now, if someone comes to you in the, let's say, the fourth year of the cycle, you know that at the beginning of the seventh year, you have to release them or relieve them of that debt. So, maybe you need to put, set the terms of the payback on two years. Now, if they come to you and they borrow something on the first year of the cycle, then they're six years before you're commanded to release them from that debt. But that's one way they kept the poor from getting poorer, uh, was by releasing the debt. Now, you're not supposed to misuse that either. Tell them, well, let's see, I'll just borrow some money today because uh, the feast begins next week, and uh, a week from now you've got to forgive the debt. That's misusing the system. And the one who's about to do the lending might better think of that. How much am I going to loan you that I'm going to be willing to give up a week from now or a year from now? So, of each other, we should not carry debt beyond six years. Seventh year is the year of release. Of a foreigner, you may exact it again, but that which is yours with your brother, your hand shall release save when there shall be no poor among you. They said this rule does not apply if there are no poor among you, because it's basically there for the poor, that they don't just have debt that compounds itself over and over and over, and they just get further and further and further in. But God says, no, release it at a certain time, and then they get relief. They wouldn't have borrowed it in the first place. They didn't need it, probably. So it's not wrong for us to borrow from one another, but if you are in the position where you need to borrow, you need to consider how you will get it paid back. 
but these things can become very difficult. Why are you so broke you need to borrow? Is it because of mismanagement? Is it because of using plastic? Is it for going in debt when you wanted things that you probably didn't need, that you shouldn't be buying because you really couldn't afford them? There is a lot of that in America today. Oh, buy now, pay later. We only have to pay 12 or 15 or 25 or 30 percent interest anyway, so what? hey, go for it. Even if you only have to pay one and a half or three or five or six percent, it still adds up. And if you spend yourself into financial trouble because of greed and lack of self-control, then the one that you come to to borrow from needs to have the wisdom to consider whether they should loan to you or not. If it's mismanagement and greed and selfishness, then that becomes a problem in itself. So the lender needs to weigh that. Tell them, well, straighten up. Quit spending like a fool. And you won't be so poor. Now, if we have a different situation, such as we do in this country today, where there isn't much work, and you're managing your money carefully and not spending where you shouldn't, and denying yourself and being careful, and still come up short because of lack of work or low wages or whatever, then whoever you approach to borrow from needs to take that into consideration. We have to learn to make wise judgments. If we are the one who is in a position of a borrower, we need to learn to make wise management judgments. Uh, if we're in a position of a lender, we need to be careful to make careful judgments. Banks do that, don't they? They'll lend to some people and not to others. They won't lend to you just because you come in and say, man, oh man, we went to the Caribbean and then we bought all this furniture and and uh, we spent all our money and we're thousands of dollars in debt. Would you uh, give us a loan of 20000 Oh yeah, sure we will. Just write the check, right? No, you've got to show responsibility before a bank will do that, generally speaking. Now lately, you know, they went nuts with what it's done to our society and why some of us are having trouble finding work today and having and getting good wages today because they did lend indiscriminately and it made a great huge housing bubble and when it collapsed, the jobs went with it. So it was irresponsibility on the part of the lenders and of the borrowers the lenders for allowing it to happen, and the borrowers for taking advantage of something they simply could not afford. So you have a double problem that is compounded, and it's affecting us all today. And it's putting some of us in the poor house. So I'm not trying to castigate those uh, who have mismanaged in the past. Uh, I understand and we have all been Americans. And it takes time to work through these things. Straighten up. Start managing properly. Quit wasting our money. But then it takes time to work our way out of it. Uh, you know? We got sucked into it. 
like everybody around us. Maybe it's not a sin to be in debt. It's a, it's a sin to continue in the direction that got you there and to continue in it. We'll read a little later on that we're not supposed to be borrowers. We're supposed to be lenders as a nation and as a people. And to reverse that for Americans is very difficult. We've gone this other way for too many decades. So he says, if they borrow, relieve it, the year of release. Save when there shall be no poor among you. For the Eternal shall greatly bless you in the land which the Eternal your God gives you for an inheritance to possess it. Now we happen to be at the end of the cycle where God is taking the blessings away. That's where we are today in America. God is removing the blessings. And we're caught in that, aren't we? Just as Israel was caught in the first few plagues that God put on Egypt, He allowed the Israelites to go through the first stages of that destruction of the Egyptian empire, to try them, to test them, and He is allowing you and me to go through the first stages of this destruction of America. We need to understand that. It's not that, well, God, you're just not blessing us. No, we're caught in the overall context of the destruction of the country and the world is where we are. And we will suffer to a degree with it for a time. And then God will make a difference. And he will give us opportunity to have plenty if we're obedient to him. He's going to allow the country and the world as a whole to slide into bankruptcy and poverty, famine, and pestilence and disease. He is going to do that. But he said, for you, if you will obey, I will make a difference and I will provide for you when I will not provide for them. So, I don't know how far down this thing we're going to slide before God makes a difference. But we're already in the slide, and we're feeling it. So understand where we are and why it is, and be sure that we obey God as carefully as we can, and hope and pray that we're among those that he makes a difference for. We can be. So he says, I will bless you so that there might not be any poor, only if you carefully hearken to the voice of the Eternal, your God, to observe to do all these commandments which I command you this day. So there you have it in a nutshell. For the Eternal, your God, blesses you as he promised you, and you shall lend unto many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. Now, we used to reign over many nations. People, other nations owed us far more money than we owed. We were the biggest creditor nation on earth. Everybody owed America. And in the last three or four decades, it has turned completely around, and now we owe. And we owe more money than any other nation on earth by far. Trillions of dollars in debt. 
we went exactly the opposite of what God wanted. We're breaking this rule. And we're beginning to feel the effects of it. And we're beginning to feel the effects of it to some degree personally because we imbibed of the system and got ourselves into debt. And we just had to have this and just had to have that and had to eat here and had to have these clothes and had to have that bigger house or newer car or whatever it is, you know. I mean, sometimes for houses and cars, Americans have gotten to the place where we just can't simply go down and buy one. I understand that. But we need to be working our way out of debt, working that direction. It just doesn't happen overnight, but it takes careful management because this is a part of obeying God. It's a part of Him being willing to bless us. And when we started living by greed in this country to the degree we have now, God began to remove those blessings. And he's about to remove them all. Now we'll be under a curse. If there be among you a poor man of one of your brethren within any of the gates in your land which the eternal your God gives you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. So if somebody is having difficulties, we are to be very willing to open our hand and to help. And I've observed many of you being willing to do those things. There are quite a few people around here that said, you know, there was money in my mailbox and I don't even know who it came from. There are people here who do those things. And there's a blessing for God for doing, from God for doing those things. The willingness to give, to help, when you see somebody that might have need. There's quite a bit of that that goes on. And it does say don't let your right hand know what your left hand does, doesn't it? You don't have to go and just hand it to them and say, this is from us. I I love the approach of leave something on their doorstep or put it anonymously in their box. and They don't know where it came from, but it's a blessing then from God through the individual who gave. And that's a beautiful thing. I'm glad to see that you are doing that in many respects. But there again, use wisdom and judgment before you just start passing out money to somebody who's going to go down and blow it on things they don't really need. You know? If you're observant enough to see that they have need, maybe you're also observant enough to kind of get some idea of why they might have need. If they're obviously out of work, uh, then they're going to begin to suffer need. Uh, But if you see them wearing glittery, shiny new things and taking trips and doing this and that and the other thing, then you might begin to wonder, hmm. And then there are always variables in there. Sometimes somebody else paid for the trip. So, I mean, don't we we, we need to be careful not to judge too... uh, much on what we ourselves view. But we need to weigh things. Use wisdom, use judgment, and help where help is needed. Be very happy to do so. But you shall open your hand wide to him, and shall surely send him sufficient for his need on that which he wants. Beware that there be not a thought in your wicked heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and your eyes be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the eternal against you, and it be sin to you, because you turned him away. 
knowing you would have to release it a short time later. You shall surely give him, if he is in need, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. We have to have that love. Love him as we love ourselves. Because that, uh, that for this thing, the eternal your God shall bless you in all your works and all that you put your hand to. If we're willing to give and serve what we have, as Herbert Armstrong used to say, you can't outgive God. If we give and have that mentality and that attitude and want to help and serve where we can, then God is going to bless us for that. Because that is the attitude that Christ kept saying we need to have. To help where we can help. For the poor shall never cease out of your land. Now, it did say earlier than that, verse 4, save when there are no poor among you. And that would be an exception. But then he goes on to say that that probably will never occur. There will always be the poor. Sometimes it's a matter of education. Sometimes it's a matter of genetics and, and background and what people were taught. Sometimes it's a matter of work not being available. There are a lot of different reasons why somebody might be poor. They might be crippled and not be able to work. But then, you know, there are people who are without hands and feet who put a pen in their mouths and make a living on the computer by punching with that pencil the different keys to make a living. So, you know... Sometimes, well, I can't find a job. Well, you're not out there looking for one eight hours a day either. You're sitting around waiting for a job to come to you. Can't do that in this day and age. Not when you get two or three or four or five hundred people applying for the same job. They're going to give it to whoever shows up and, and shows that they really want the job and are willing to work and do what you want done. The days of just sending in a resume to seven places on the Internet and sitting back waiting for a job are kind of over. Jobs are hard to find. And I've seen some of you take jobs that were very menial, and some of you are working those jobs to this day. Uh, you know, just barely making enough to make gas <laughs> up to Zion and back. Uh, you got a job, but it's not making you much money in some cases. But I do appreciate the willingness to work at it and try to find a job and hope for a raise. And, and there are all kinds of different things. Some would lose money by taking a job like that because they might be able to make enough money in two or three days to, to uh, make up for what it would take them two or three weeks to make up there. So if they're getting a little work with higher pay, it's better than spending all their time working at a a dead-end job, and they don't have time to do the jobs that would bring more money. So there are all different kinds of scenarios. I understand that. We're talking about the principles here of mercy and help, and we're talking about the situation that we're in today where there's going to be an increasing number of poor for a variety of reasons. So we need to all chip in and help each other where we need to help each other to make sure we all survive and have some. And they went to the extent in the early New Testament of finally saying it's getting so bad, 
let's just throw everything in a pile and everybody can have what they need to eat for today. That is a truly emergency situation. But who knows? We might get to that too. It's very possible. And we'd better be willing to give as they did. Verse 12, And if your brother, an Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, be sold to you and serve you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. So God allowed slavery, but it was only maximum of six years that you could have a particular slave. Um, and when you send him out free from you, you shall not let him go away empty. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock and out of your floor and out of your winepress. Of that wherewith eternal your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. He served you six years, five years, whatever it was, till the year of release. Then you're to be sure that he doesn't just go out and sit on the street, but that he has opportunity. So even with slaves, God had rules that they be taken care of properly. And you shall remember that you were a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the eternal your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this thing today. I think God is going to put us in a position, based on Isaiah 54 and 5 and other places, where people will come to us, and he will have given us everything we need to give to them. And we're to remember that we were a bond slave in this world and its system, which has decreed, by the way they do things, that the man and the woman both have to work in order to have a house and a car, basically. Satan and society have dumped that on us. It's not what God intended at all. But God is going to make a difference at some point, and He's going to give us everything we need so that we can share it with the others that He brings. And we'll remember that we were a bondman, and not just keep it all for ourselves if God blesses us, but we're to give it to whoever. He says they'll come and they'll have milk and wine without money. God will, if we are faithful, give us everything we need to provide what they need. Because they'll be coming from countries whose economies are failing, who have nothing, and just arrive. And it'll be up to us to take care of them. And we should be ready and willing to do that. And hopefully God will give us everything we need to make it possible. I do believe that's the case based on a lot of scriptures. Uh, let's see, remember you are bondsman, verse 16, and it shall be if he say to you, I will not go away from you. Your slave says, hey man, I've done good here. You've treated me right. You've fed me. You've clothed me. You've housed me. You've taken good care of me. I don't want to go away. I want to be your servant. Because he loves you and your house, because he is well with you, he's happy there. Then you shall take an awl and thrust it through his ear into the door or the door jam, and he shall be your servant forever. Pierce his ear, in other words. Make a hole big enough that shows that he was your servant and that he has chosen for the rest of his life to be your servant. Sounds like it would hurt and be cruel, but you girls do it all the time. Uh, maybe there are ways of doing it where it doesn't hurt so much. 
and he'll be your servant forever, and also under your maidservant you shall do likewise. It shall not seem hard to you when you send him away from you, for he has been worth a double hired servant to you in serving you six years, and the eternal your God shall bless you in all that you do. Sounds like they had some employment contracts for three years. But here, this individual who was your slave that you had bought uh, works double that, six years. Verse 19, all the firstling males, the first ones that are born to uh, a female animal, firstling males that come of your herd and of your flock, you shall sanctify to the eternal your God. You shall do no work with the firstling of your bullock, wasn't to plow or put it to work, nor shear the firstling of your sheep. You shall eat it before the eternal your God year by year in the place which the eternal shall choose you and your household. So if you have firstling males, not females, males of your flock, then that's feast food. They're to be set aside to take to the feast and eat there. And if there be any blemish therein, as if it be lame or blind or have an ill blemish, you shall not sacrifice it to the eternal your God. Christ was a perfect sacrifice, and if we were to bring one of our firstlings uh, and offer it in that day as a firstling to God and sacrifice it, even though it could be eaten afterward, uh, it had to be perfect. It couldn't have anything wrong with it. You shall eat it within your gates. So if you have a firstling male that is... Uh, deformed in some way, or has a broken leg, or uh, ear partly missing, or you know, it's not a, it's not perfect. Then you can keep it and eat it at home. That doesn't mean you should go out and cut their ears off so you can keep them there instead of taking them as feast meat. You know, people have their ways of doing what they want to do. Sometimes I don't think that's too far fetched to even use as an example. Eat it within your gates. The unclean and the clean person shall eat it alike. So if it had a blemish, it couldn't be sacrificed to God, but it didn't make it unclean. You could go ahead and eat it, and unclean people or Gentiles, non-members of the church, could also eat it, like some of your servants that might not be Israelite or uh, whoever might be a stranger in your gate. You can eat it alike as the roebuck and as the heart. So just like wild game, you could eat it. Other people around you could eat it as well. Only you shall not eat the blood thereof. You shall pour it upon the ground as water. We're always commanded not to eat the blood. Let's see, I've got about 12 minutes till time to quit. Let's, uh, let's cover chapter 16 or get as far as we can. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover. Unto the eternal your God, for in the month of Abib the eternal God brought you forth out of the land of Egypt by night. So he reckoned it by night, from the time that the order was gone to get out of here. People say, well, they, they left uh, next morning, it wasn't in the night, but it was the night and during the night of the 14th that the command came. You shall therefore sacrifice the Passover unto the Eternal your God of the flock and the herd in the place which the Eternal shall choose to place his name there. Uh, you shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread therewith. 
even the bread of affliction, for you came forth out of the land of Egypt in haste, that you may remember the day when you came forth out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. The day that they left was the important one, the day of the 14th as we understand it. And there shall be no leavened bread seen with you in all your coast for seven days. Neither shall there anything of the flesh which you sacrificed the first day at even remain all night until the morning. So the Passover was killed, and it was to be all eaten by the next morning. You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates, which eternal your God gives you, but at the place which eternal your God shall choose to place his name in. We've seen that is at Jerusalem. There you shall sacrifice the Passover at even, at the going down of the sun, at the season that you came forth out of Egypt. And you shall roast and eat it in the place which the eternal your God shall choose, and you shall turn in the morning and go to your tents. Six days shall you eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day shall be a solemn assembly to the eternal your God, and do no work therein. So a Sabbath on the last day of unleavened bread. Seven weeks shall you number to you, begin to number the seven weeks from such time as you begin to put the sickle to the corn, which was uh, the Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread. And you shall keep the Feast of Weeks under the Eternal. All this detail isn't right here in this chapter, but it's uh, a summary of it. You shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Eternal your God with a tribute of a free will offering of your hand, which you shall give unto the Eternal your God according as the Eternal your God has blessed you. And you shall rejoice before the Eternal your God, you and your son and your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, and the Levite that is within your gates, and the stranger and the fatherless, and the widow that are among you, in the place which the Eternal your God has chosen to place his name there. You don't leave the manservant and the maidservant home uh, doing the work while you go to the feast. In their agricultural society... Looks like they packed everybody up and took them. And you shall remember that you were a bondman in Egypt, and you shall observe and do these statutes. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days after that you've gathered in your corn and your wine. And you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your manservant, your maidservant, the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow that are within your gates. It would take second tithe kept from the whole crop, wouldn't it, to take care of that many? It's the way he ordained it and set it up. Seven days shall you keep a solemn feast to the eternal your God in the place which he shall choose, because the eternal your God shall bless you in all your increase and in all the works of your hands, therefore you shall surely rejoice. So if we keep his feasts the way he wants them kept, he will bless us and we'll be able to rejoice. We'll have the money to do, to do to, in order to rejoice. So then he says in verse 16, three times in a year, or three seasons in the year, which would be the Holy Day seasons, Passover unleavened bread season, Pentecost season, and then the fall feast from trumpets through the last great day. These three seasons in a year shall all your males appear before the eternal your God in the place which he shall choose. Now notice he said... Ideally, you'll bring the whole kit and caboodle. Manservant, maidservant, son, daughter, wife, everybody. But, if we're in a drought cycle or there's not much money, at least the male of the family was to appear. 
at minimum, the male had to be there. If a woman's, you know, three days from having a baby, uh, the male goes and maybe she stays home and has the baby. The husband does not stay with, home with her to have the baby. He goes to the feast because that, at a minimum, is commanded. I've seen people have a parent or something die during the feast. They don't keep the feast. They go back to bury their parent or their whoever died. I don't think that's right. Now, you have to make your individual decisions and what you do and how strong your faith and your willingness to obey God is if those things happen. But God said, be at the feast to worship the king. Now, what did Christ himself say when someone said, well, I want to follow you, but first let me go bury my father. And he told him, no, you're not supposed to do that. You come and follow me. Acts 5.29 says, obey God rather than men. Well, but my relatives will be all upset. Okay. Would you rather have your relatives upset or God upset? Yeah, we love our parents. I jumped in the car right after I heard my dad died and headed down there for my mother's sake. I drove nonstop except for gas till I got there. Thank you. But if it had been the Feast of Tabernacles, I'd have said, well, he'd have been there. But uh, if he hadn't been, he'd have been out in the world, I'd have said, put him on ice. they got ways of handling that. And if you can't put him on ice, bury him. And I'll be down afterward. Because God comes first. We have our human feelings, our human desires, our human thinking, and it is not the way of God. He wants us to know that we put him first. And that's what Christ told the one he said, come and follow me. Oh, no, i got to go bury my dad. He just died. Sorry, I'll see you in a few days. Oh, no. Why do you think that example was given? Because whatever the situation, we put God first. Our land, our homes, our relatives come second. He says, you may have to give those up and come and follow me. Which is more important to us? Our relatives, our husbands, our wives, our children, or our God? Tough, isn't it? It is tough. Very emotional. But isn't that what Christ said? Are we willing? And even our own life also? Some of us would rather give up our life than to give up our husband or our wife or our child. That isn't what God says to do. He says, give up whatever you have to give up and come and follow me. Is the first commandment important? Or, eh, I'll get around to it someday. What's important?
Are they tough choices? Yes, they are. And nobody can make those decisions for people. All we can do is read God's Word and say, Have no other gods before me, even to your own life also. Be willing to give up your life. Don't fear those who can destroy the body, but he who can destroy the body and the soul. God is first in our lives. There's no human being on this earth that can save you and give you the kingdom of God and eternal life. No human being can do that for you. Only God. And nobody, no matter how much you cherish your children, your father, your mother, your husband, or your wife, you cannot give them eternal life and inheritance in the kingdom of God. Only He can. So you put Him first in the hope that you'll be in the first resurrection and be there if those children or mates or whoever they are die and come up in the last great day. Be sure you're there to help them into the kingdom of God instead of you missing out on the kingdom of God and maybe them too because you set such a lousy example for them. God has set it up, brethren, for us to make tough choices. He set it up for Abraham to make a pretty tough choice when he not only said, walk away from your son, but kill him before you do and burn him on the altar. That's what the sticks were for. I don't think we usually think of that. We just think of him killing him. No, he had him laying on a bed of sticks, so that when he sliced his throat and his blood gurgled out on the ground, he would then light a fire and burn Isaac. And Abraham and Isaac were both willing to do that for God. Now, when God says that we are to consider Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and in Malachi, to turn the hearts to our Father in heaven first, this is what it's talking about. And secondarily, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were our fathers. And that is the second most important example for us beyond the Father and the Son. That's why he says, go there. Because Abraham was faithful to the death of his own son. Now, we may have to make some hard choices. If we're faithful in little, we'll be faithful in much. What if somebody says, I'm going to torture you and kill you unless you recant what you believe? How do you know what you would do? I'll tell you how you know. You know because you do the little things day by day that you're supposed to do. And you're setting a pattern. You're building a character. You're establishing integrity. And God says, if you're faithful in those little things, you will be faithful in much. He guarantees that. 
But if we're not faithful in the little things day by day, week by week, and month by month, and then we face the big one, we might be in deep trouble. If we can't trust Him with our physical maladies that might be less than uh, life-threatening, then we won't be able to trust Him with something that is life-threatening. That faith, that trust has to be established. It doesn't come easy. It comes day by day by the little things that we put our trust in God in. And as we do that, our faith goes stronger and stronger and prepares us for whatever big things may come along. Anyway, verse 16, Three times in a year shall all your males appear before the eternal your God in the place he chooses, Feast of Seven Bread, Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the eternal empty. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the eternal your God, which he has given you. So it's a, it's not a tithe. It's an offering we bring to God at his holy day times that we make a decision on. We think about the blessings we have in life, but what God has done for us, we consider what we have, and then we consider how much our heart says we give God. Is this where it says, God loves a cheerful giver? No, it's somewhere else. But He wants us to consider our blessings and then cheerfully create an offering to Him that reflects our heart and our mind reflects our Christianity and our devotion to Him. We don't need any human being to see what it is, because that's a decision we make based on our relationship with God. That's what we give. Some of us get into a habit, I think, of, well, let's see, I give this much on each holy day. It just becomes almost a, a ritual. I don't think that's right. It may even be a generous amount. But I don't think it's right to do it that way, where, oh, it's Holy Day, this is how much I always give. No, I think as each Holy Day season comes, you need to count your blessings, get your relationship with God the way it ought to be, then look at your financial situation and say, this is how much I can give now based on what God has been doing for me. So it's not just a ritual that you sort of do, but it's something you think about and prepare before God. Prayer should not be a ritual where, now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep, blah, 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 blah. Prayer should be something personal between us and God where we talk to Him. And every prayer should be somewhat different than the last one, depending on the circumstances. And our offerings should be thought out the same way. They should be prepared. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the eternal which he has given. So, three times a year, you consider the blessings. When you consider, that means you analyze, you think, you prepare. And then it's more personal. It has more to do with your relationship with God and what you are prepared to give back to Him. And it should be personal that way. 
I know like years ago I got in the habit of when a holy day came, I just wrote a check, and it was nearly always the same amount, because that's just what I'd established in my mind was a good offering. I don't think that fits this principle. I think I was doing it wrongly. Anyway, judges and officers shall you make in all your gates, which eternal your God gives you throughout the tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not rest or malign or misuse judgment. You shall not respect persons, neither take a gift, for a gift does blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. We have judges and congressmen and policemen and all kinds of people who are paid off today. They're given bribes and gifts, payola, all kinds of things. God says, don't do that. That which is altogether just shall you follow, that you may live and inherit the land which the eternal your God gives you. You shall not plant you a grove of any trees near to the altar of the eternal your God, which you shall make you. Neither shall you set thee up any image which the eternal your God hates. They often stripped the branches off of trees and made obelisks out of them as uh, male phallic symbols of worship. So it says, if you do make an altar to God, don't plant trees near it, because some ding-dong is going to cut the limbs off and worship the tree. Uh, so he said, just don't do that. Make the altar and plant your trees somewhere else. If there is a way to pervert anything, some human being will find a way to do it, won't they? It's just the way mankind is. So God just warned you, no, don't even make the opportunity to sin. Stay away from those things that would cause you to sin. Even if it means where you plant trees. You don't get as close to sin as you can get and then hope you do or don't, however you're hoping at the moment. We need to stay away. So don't even plant trees, he says. All right, we're out of time, past time, so let's stop there for today.